0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And if you are like... Many of us, learning last week that God is sovereign over all of life events, makes you ask a question. The question is, well, what role then do I play, right? If God is sovereign, which the poem in verses 2 to 8 assures, we then want to understand what is our function in this thing? What, what's our role? And, and struggling to understand the providence of God Folks, that is not an indication of spiritual weakness. It really is not. Weakness would be seen through just dismissing God's sovereignty, pretending it doesn't exist. That would be weakness. And that is actually the heavily traveled road in modern Christianity. It truly is. By contrast, the generations past, you think of... Uh, St. Augustine, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin, John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, uh, coming into the revivals with George Whitfield, and, and then, of course, the great Charles Spurgeon, and, and these real great thinkers and theologians, really giants of the Christian faith, they all embraced God's sovereignty. As I confessed last week, I don't exhaustively understand it, I don't, I don't fully understand how God orchestrates our lives, but I do know the sovereignty is what the Bible teaches. Foreknowledge, sovereignty, election, predestination. They're unmistakable privileges of God. We can't, we can't just pretend they're not there. We should be then cautious of, of just uh, coming up with methods to dismiss it. Better to try to understand it to the the best that we can. We shouldn't just dismiss sovereignty just to make ourselves feel better about things that we just don't fully comprehend. We can acknowledge we don't understand everything perfectly. Still, most of us would like to understand a little bit more, right? We'd like to understand a little more clearly as we ask this question. Since God's plan for my life is appointed and ordained... What then is my role in decision making? Isn't that an important question? Really important. And, if things are ultimately beyond my control, which they are, why should I want to endure daily life? When it's not sufficiently explained, the doctrine of of divine sovereignty can make life appear meaningless. It's like we don't even have a function or a role. So then, what is the meaning of of my life these are these folks are intelligent questions very intelligent questions and since we ask these things you will probably not be surprised to learn that this writer being Solomon the preacher after writing this poem insisting that God has appointed a time for everything this is the next question the very next question that Solomon answers where is the prophet in life's daily toil? What's in it for us? And starting in verse 9, we find Solomon's explanation of the poem. If God is provident and fully in control, why does he enforce us to endure this life of toil? For already uh, uh, Solomon has described the life as drudgery in earlier chapters. And folks, Scripture is honest. We've got to be very thankful that the Scripture does not dance around uh, these ideas, these thoughts, these, these principles. It, it, scripture takes these questions head on for us. And, and speaking to this mysterious enigma... Solomon begins by asking this exact question as I begin reading in verse 9, if you'll look with me there. He asks, what profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything, remember from last week, appropriate, proper, and beautiful in its time, right? He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work at which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So that is Solomon's explanation. Next comes in verse 12, the application. I know that there is nothing better for them, speaking to the sons of men, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men shall fear Him. That which is has, already, has been already, and that which will be has already been. For God seeks... What has passed by. Why that last sentence, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I'll make your head spin a little bit. Let's simply begin by looking at Solomon's question. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? What is the profit in all of this? You know, the pendulum of life, it swings back and forth as the clock ticks. you got birth, death. Grieving, laughter, throwing stones, gathering stones, searching for, throwing away, love, hate, war, peace, tick tock, tick tock. A seemingly endless cycle of drudgery can appear this life, can it? Over and over again, drudgery. Life's a chore. If you haven't noticed yet, life is a chore. Don't run for the exits just yet. We need to cover this. We need to cover this. Many people are are dealing with these questions now. What is the point of my life? Because by the time we reach our 29th birthday, most of us, not all, most of us determine that life just gives this appearance of an endless toil. A repeated toil. Endless toil. Typically, the 18-year-old, speaking for the 18-year-olds here, I was one once. They want to conquer the world. They they want to live forever. They are strong physically. Uh, Every day is exploring. uh, Every day brings something new. It is discovery. It is exciting. Meanwhile, the 50-year-old has already seen it all. Our back hurts, right? And listening to that click, uh, that tick-tock, and that clock tick throughout our lives, it makes Christians really want to yearn for Christ's return. We're very much looking forward uh, to Christ's uh, second advent. And life on earth has supplied mankind with this... This perpetual experience, the same perpetual experience from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, it never stops. The, folks, the, the world never runs out of 18-year-olds and 50-year-olds. Everybody's transitioning through these phases of life, and every one of us is learning as we go. Ultimately, about 98 out of 100, that's not a scientific poll, they'll eventually conclude we're here just to endure i guess we just must endure this life but we never stop asking this question where is the profit in our toil what is the point what is the point christians ask this you will not be surprised that virtually every generation of secular scientist and philosopher and psychologist they never stop asking the exact same question. What is the meaning of life? They, they still can't figure it out. They still cannot figure it out. Therefore, Solomon, who, who is the, the quintessential philosopher, he, he truly is the, the true thinker ab- about life's circumstances and, and ultimate meaning, he, he says this in verse 10, I have seen the task which God has given. Who's given it? God has given to the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He says, we must find the answers to our questions in God. Though we experience, folks, some, some benefits from modern science and Uh, Even to an extent, those dangerous modern psychology, secular philosophy, all of those together cannot solve this question. They cannot solve problems. Actually, in many ways, they contribute to our problems. But to answer life's hardest questions, we must, as the preacher Solomon does, we, we must become theologians to understand our toil. We must be thinkers about the Bible and about doctrine and about God in order to find meaning in life. Life contains no value or ultimate meaning apart from God. When you go into an atheistic society or a society that is attempting to be atheistic or striving to be atheistic and to push God out of the discussion and the square, it becomes a very dark place. Very dark place. China can be a very dark place. There is a light of a gospel shining there. There are Christians that are living there. But the atheistic worldview is darkness. Complete darkness. The Hebrew term that we see there in verse 10, task, It implies bearing a load or or bearing a burden. Literally in the Hebrew it reads that God has given man, quote, a burden with which to burden him. God has given man a burden with which to burden him. And Solomon says he's seen it. He has seen this burden. It has saturated his mind. He, He can't get it out of his thoughts and the burden never goes away. It never goes away. It, op- it occupies us. What is the burden? It's a question asked in verse 9. What profit is there to God's worker for enduring? What's the profit? What is the point? Verse 11 then begins uh, to provide Solomon's answer as he shifts our minds back to the, the sovereignty worldview. From verses 2 to 8. I I, hope you are here last week because I I placed a lot of emphasis on this principle last week. But we persevere in life because God has made everything appropriate. He's made everything proper. He has made everything beautiful in its timing. Life is a beautiful work of God. He has composed it. He has orchestrated it. It is all about His goodness for us. Romans 8.28 And after that message, I heard from a number of people who who confessed that they could look back and see God's handiwork in their lives. Looking back, you know, a Christian should never look back in time uh, without seeing the wonderful things that God has orchestrated through our lives, through our life events. Uh, If you're anything like me, you can see how God's hand was working in your life, long before you even profess faith in Christ. Long before uh, we we believe in Jesus, God's already working things out, circumstances, for our good. It's because he loves us. Um, And God's sovereignty during our earlier years, think about this. In, In those earlier years, everything remained a mystery. It was a complete mystery until we look back with a divine perspective and see, that was God. When those things happened, it was, it was God, and I wasn't even a believer yet. And He's worked all things for the good. Would you like to meet a man who is the perfect illustration of this? Not your heads, yes. You, you probably already know Him. His name is George Bailey. George Bailey began as most of us do youth, passion, big dreams for his life. He was going to travel the world, right? Then his dad unexpectedly died. Then there was a run on the bank that he managed. Next, a world war came. Then criminal accusations followed. He endured perpetual frustration of all of his life's dreams. He lived in a drafty old house with noisy children. At one point he faces prison for something that he did not do. And what does George declare? Do you remember? I wish I were never born. Boom, Clarence, AS2, Angel Second Class. is that a great movie? It's a great movie. And George gets something that, that the rest of us never do. He gets a peek, he, he gets a look behind the curtain of God's providence. Clarence refers to it as a gift from God. God's in the picture. And George gets to see what this world would have looked like if he had never been born. His town of Bedford Falls, it had been renamed Pottersville. And downtown Pottersville looks like the Vegas Strip, if you remember right. Martinis has been renamed Nix. His boss, the druggist whom he loved, had spent... 20 years in prison doing hard time because he accidentally poisoned someone uh, during a time of grief. The building alone closed. His brother Harry never gets the Congressional Medal of Honor because George wasn't there to stop him from drowning. His beautiful wife Donna Reed, I mean Mary. She's a lonely spinster because he was not there and George, though he had, ne- he had thought he had never done anything significant, just the daily grind working up working every day, waking in the morning and and doing the mundane tasks of life, he discovered the whole time that he had been he had been living a wonderful life, a wonderful life. And when Clarence finally lets him go back to everyone, you know he 's surrounded by friends and family. And his brother, it's amazing, his brother Harry is there making a toast in front of everyone, saying, my big brother George Bailey, the richest man in town. Isn't that great? A peek back at his life and everything that God had done, the friends that he, uh, that he had, but he couldn't see any of it. He couldn't see any of it until he received a glimpse behind the curtain. A little peek at what God had been doing. uh, The architecture behind the scenes of life. And then he could finally understand why all of his grand dreams were constantly being thwarted. Again and again. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, "The The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's a Wonderful Life serves as a picture of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. God is in command of our days. We do not get to determine our course in life because God knows better. Christians, of course, are still encouraged in the Bible to make our plans. But always in the spirit of James 4.15, which says, We ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and do that. Presumption, it's evil, James says. Why? Because we don't get to peek behind the curtain. We don't get to see what God is doing in the moment. We don't understand uh, how His sovereignty is giving meaning even to our past. Make plans, prepare for the future, go to college, pursue life, get a job, chart your course. But you're not the captain of your ship because the Lord determines your heading. He knows exactly where you are going. Comparatively few adults today, comparatively few, there are exceptions, but comparatively few uh, adults are doing today what they thought they would be doing when they were in their teens. That's a fact. We just don't see where we are going. Um, Proverbs 19, 21 and 16 verse 1 say this, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. God's sovereign plan is always a better plan. He sees behind the curtain. He knows exactly what is going on and why, and His will always stands. It always stands. This doesn't suggest that that man uh, in himself doesn't ever make choices. I was talking with uh, Matthew earlier this morning about the presence of evil in the world. Many people have questions, have had questions about evil, and I've got a couple good articles. If you're looking for those, email me. Uh, the bulletin has my email in there, and I can send you the links. Because these are the questions that come up. But man in his heart is desperately wicked. If God were not restraining us, both believers and unbelievers, believers by the indwelling spirit of God, and then even unbelievers by, by law and by human government and the other, the other things that God has put in place. If God were not restraining evil, this country, the whole world would be going nuts. It'd be as in the day of Noah. And God is restraining us from making as bad of choices as we would without Him. God, God yes, He can turn the heart. He, can, he, can, uh, he is sovereign. He can bring circumstances and situations. He can, he can give us rebirth, as Gerald was sharing this morning, spiritual rebirth. But God is not obligated to restrain us all in, into perfect human beings it's not it's not his it's not his prerogative there's evil in the world because men are evil that's what men do but god the righteous gives forgiveness to those who will place their faith in christ it's a conundrum it's a conundrum um we are morally responsible for what we choose even in god's sovereign plan uh The only thing that this this passage assures us is God has an override button. He's in central command. And He can override where He wills. But we will be responsible uh, for our sin. Trust in Christ. Like many of you, I would have never charted my life, the course of my life, if I would have been in control. I would have never charted my course as it exists today. But at this moment... There's no place that I would rather be. It is all the working of God. I can't take any credit for it. God will make everything beautiful in its time. In the proper time. There's more. Not only has God ordained our times, as seen in verses 2 through 8, but in verse 11, it says that He has also set eternity in their heart. It is intrinsic in the heart of every man and woman to realize that their current course in life is going to propel them into eternity. We're all going to enter the eternal state at one point. All of the events of our lives perpetuate, uh, perpetuate us into a destination and we instinctively know that life goes on beyond the grave. Uh, human history uh, on earth will culminate. There will be a point of Christ's return when when earthly history, and on the current earth we know, it will all culminate and our hearts recognize that our souls will endure forever. Our souls will endure forever. But humanity is progressing towards an ultimate climax with a judgment and an eternal destiny. An eternal destiny, either heaven or hell. Everything we see in the world, you look around, everything has divine design written all over it. You can't get away from it. Everything has God's handiwork, His fingerprint on it. Um, the order found in creation reminds us that we will be held accountable by this Creator. Doesn't matter where you live on the planet. Doesn't matter if you've ever heard of Christ or haven't heard of Christ. Everyone is accountable for their sin around the planet. Uh, we do not deny eternity. But God has set eternity in every man's heart. Every man and woman knows it. Romans 1 verse 20 tells us that since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, speaking of mankind, are without excuse. Creation itself is a testimony of God's handiwork, God has made Himself and His eternal purposes sufficiently evident to all. Everyone. Earlier in our scripture reading from Acts chapter 17, when the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, the city had never heard of Jesus Christ at that point. They weren't familiar with the God of Israel or the scriptures. They weren't familiar with God but what did, what did Paul declare in their midst? He said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Were, there, were they irreligious? They weren't irreligious. They were very religious. Athenians, they were polytheists who believed there were many different kinds of God, the existence of many deities. They actually accused Paul of, of uh, declaring a strange deity. And they even dedicated an altar to an unknown God because they didn't want to anger it accidentally. They didn't want to make this unknown God anger, uh, angry, so they, they made a monument or, or an altar to this unknown God. They didn't want to leave anybody out. The Athenians had eternity in their hearts. They, they were groping around, trying to find some kind of explanation for God. They're, they're like blind men. Groping around, uh, men and women searching to understand who God is and what eternity will be like. Their philosophers uh, tackle questions like uh, what is the meaning of life? I've been trying to figure it out since the beginning. You know, maybe you have been doing the same thing. Maybe you've been living a life like them. You wonder, you know, is, is there any meaning to this life that I just find unfulfilling? Unfulfilling to me i don 't know why i 'm even here, and the false gods that you have embraced in your in your mind they don 't satisfy you uh, due, to, due to lack of satisfaction you 've determined for yourself well i 'm going to pursue uh, other forms of entertainment you 're going to attempt to fill it with uh, your heart with sin because nothing else has filled it and and you 've tried greed or some other form of lust or immorality. And nothing satisfies. Nothing gives gratification to you. It doesn't work. So what do you do? You double down, right? You get in a phase in life, I'm like, well, I guess I just need to sin more. Still doesn't satisfy. Nothing can fill the heart. Till one day, you hear from the Apostle Paul, this is in Acts 17, verse 30, and you hear him declare how God has in His loving mercy... God has in his loving mercy overlooked your times of ignorance. And God declares to all men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Christ whom God has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. And your heart instinctively knows that every man and woman is going to be raised from the dead and judged by God. We all know it. We all know it. And like the Athenians, you've, you've heard that truth as they did uh, up on Mars Hill. And now you must determine where are you going to stand in that day? Where are you going to be in the day of judgment? You can either stand with the many in Athens, the larger group, whom verse 22, uh, 32 says, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, they began to sneer. They began to mock the idea. Or you can stand with the few who scripture says joined Paul and believed in Jesus Christ, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's a narrow road to salvation. And today in America, as, as in Athens, there will be a few. They were, there will be a few who are saved from their sins by confessing in their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in their heart that God raised him from the dead. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. We in this church, the members of this church, have responded to Christ. We have believed that he is the Son of God who bore our sins on the cross. We invite you to stand with us. We invite you to stand with Paul the Apostle. We invite you to stand with Jesus Christ who is going to return to judge the living and the dead. And you will be spared from all of your sins. You have to determine where you are going to stand. But eternity is in your heart. And in your life you will never experience true meaning apart from God. If, you want to, if, if you're hoping to rise from the deadness of your soul, if that's you today, and the desperation that you are feeling, this can be a lonely life. Scripture would say, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You must, by faith, respond to the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, by faith we endure our toil, this life, this drudgery, knowing the eternal purposes of God are a wonderful life that is going to be maintained a mystery until Christ returns the inner workings behind the scenes of our lives and our families, it's going to be a mystery until He returns. Until then, we're not permitted a peek. For although God has set eternity in our hearts, verse 11 says that He has done it in such a way so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. You're going to be forced to work, uh, walk by faith. Have to walk by faith. There is no other option. God has orchestrated all of this in a way that we will not know until He returns. The Bible tells us that God is in control of our times and we know all things are working together for His purposes, but we we don't get a visit from Clarence. We do not. Our thirst for understanding must be quenched by the fire of the gospel. And the knowledge that God is sovereignly working all events in our lives for good. And it is a mysterious and wonderful life that He gives. He has given us a wonderful life. Trusting all this, our responsibility then, or or our function, what we are to do, the part that we get to play, is given in verse 12. Solomon says, I know that there is nothing better for them, meaning the sons of men, than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all of his labor. It is the gift of God. That's all we get. We don't get to direct or write the script. For once, we need to finally let God be God. And He's good at it. He's good at it. Life becomes very simple. We rejoice... And we always do good. This is our starring role in the movie. Rejoice and do good. The ESV Study Bible supplies a note that says this, Rather than becoming embittered by what God has not granted human beings, namely the ability to comprehend all of reality, one should enjoy the gifts that God has given. Enjoy life. Embrace what you have. Uh, That's how we endure day to day. We wake, we work hard, we do good, we are honest, we are loving neighbors. For this reason, we aren't concerned about a warrant being out for our our arrest at night. We lay our heads down, we rest in peace. We keep life simple, we enjoy a Jimmy Johns and a Dr. Pepper. We pay our bills on time. Our drafty old house is really not that bad. And the fire of the gospel is our warmth. We love our children and we nurture them in truth. We give them security and happiness to the best of our ability. We take care of our families. And we teach them about Christ. Trust God to take care of the rest. That's it. That's life. That's the goodness of God. It is a gift. It's not important for us to see the machinery behind God's sovereignty or to know how He does what He does, but somehow He does. He does it. And we trust and obey in the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. It is His gift for us. It's our gift from Him. Life is good, George Bailey. Enjoy it. God has done good things for you. Trust your Bible. Worship Christ. And you will not forget it when the Lord returns. This is our only function in God's sovereign plan. He has done His providential work in such a way that man will not find out the work which God has done uh, from the beginning and to the end. It's not going to happen. We're not going to get it. Verses 14 and 15 are challenging but not impossible to interpret. The preacher says, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take away from it, for God has so worked that men should fear Him. This is probably only intended to suggest that that God's sovereign plan is perfect. In the end, God's recipe, it's not going to be lacking any ingredients. There's nothing that we need to add to it. Nor remove from it. God is not relying on us to lie awake at night to figure out some way to perfect life or His work. Our times and our destiny are His handiwork. He's got it covered. They belong to Him, and God is working in a way in which in which men should fear Him. Everywhere you travel around the globe, there are no true atheists. They, They may confess to be atheists, but they're lying. Everywhere, mankind worships something. Because we fear that we have offended God in some way. Everybody worships something. And man is right. We have offended God. Sin offends God. And everywhere people have have never heard of God's word, uh, they should be in fear of God's judgment and condemnation. Those are good things. Fear of God is a good thing. You think about growing up, I just popped in my head this morning too, listening to Gerald teach in the other building, uh, Israel and the giving of the Ten Commandments. You know, the do thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. These are good things. People ought to people ought to be thankful for, for the giving of the law. For, for the restraint that is in the law. Because when people read things like the Ten Commandments, there's a fear. I remember I, as I was a good little Lutheran boy, we were forced to learn those Ten Commandments. And I feared. I'm like, wait But I've taken things. I've sinned. I, I've done things that, that break all these commandments. How, how can I get to God through keeping the commandments? The fact is you can't. You must come by grace and recognize you are a law breaker. It is a tutor to lead us to Christ. That's a good thing. Fear of the Lord is a good thing. That's a different sermon for a different day. Sadly, um, in the state that we're in, in this country, people no longer fear God because they've been told that, that God will never, will never condemn anyone. That's the view of God that they've been told. Forget about the Ten Commandments. It's all going to be good. And it has turned our society into a mess. It really has. A false gospel of a false God who will never judge. Finally, in verse 15, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what is passed by. I'll be honest, this is one of the most confusing verses in all of the Bible. Scholars disagree on its exact meaning, so I'm not, we don't have to get excessively dogmatic. But I'll give it my best shot. Here it is. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's a good translation, renders the verse in this way. Whatever is, has already been. And whatever will be, already is. God repeats what has passed. So I believe in context... The, the The poem about life this means the work of God, though it is mysterious it 's also in some ways predictable. God repeats many things in the same way uh, you learn in in high school in science class, if you mix baking soda into vinegar, you get a reaction right, and every time that you mix the same amount of baking soda into vinegar. It's the identical response every time you do it. It's, it's scientifically repeatable. In a similar way, God orchestrates life in a way that we can understand. That which is, has already been, and that which will be in the future, already is. It makes, makes sense. We can all observe the life of George Bailey and see that it translates into our life because we've experienced many of the same things. That's what makes the movie so endearing, is that we can see ourselves in in that George Bailey. Uh, Bailey. And we should expect similar results in life from similar behavior. To summarize, God's providence over human events and life's affairs is not capricious. It's not all over the map. It's predictable. He repeats again and again through the course of life. It isn't like he's an evil scientist that's orchestrating a whole bunch of uh, different results to come uh, to cause uh, an out of control chain reaction. Life's predictable. That, too, is the goodness of God. We can predict outcomes, there's a repetitive nature uh, uh, of the course of human na- uh, history. Uh, it has to be this way, or the Bible wouldn't be able to speak to wisdom. If circumstances change and effects were always changing, the wisdom of the Bible would be of no benefit to us. We see that civilizations rise and they fall under similar circumstances. God repeats that which is past. Therefore, God has set eternity on our hearts. We can discern the consequences of our actions. If you do A, expect B. That's the goodness of God. Random combinations of time, space, and chance. They're neither acceptable scientific theories for the origin of the universe, nor suitable for scientific analysis, nor are they adequate for understanding the sovereignty of God. It's not all random. God repeats what is past. Solomon has revealed that God's sovereign purpose for your life is to do nothing better than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. For we are called to live by faith and that explanation is good enough. All we need to know. I'll close by pointing you to this question in the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Answer, Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him for eternity. That's our role. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the work that You have done and and You continue to do, as we see your power, your ability to work things for good. Lord, we pray that we would respond in, in being good. That we would be those in the image of Christ that would love our neighbor as ourselves. That we would see through your word that you have an eternal plan of redemption, yet you've caused us to be part of it. And Father, I would pray that we would love people enough to tell them the truth that there is a judgment coming, that there is forgiveness available through uh, Christ your Son, and and that there is meaning to all of this. That there is rationale. And uh, Father, on the day you come, we'd love to hear the the well-done, good and faithful servant. And in the meantime, for the things that we just don't understand, and how you can be sovereign and orchestrate life events, and yet we are responsible to to love and obey, and to do what is good. Lord, uh, that is a mystery. But even in mystery, Lord, you have given us a wonderful life. Given us one another. You've given us salvation. Offering it in Christ Jesus. You've given us your Spirit who helps us to know you more and more. And Lord, we do look forward to that day of your return where we will see Christ face to face. And we will understand fully. Lord, we look forward to that day. In the meantime, bless us in the holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen.